0: Living Christ, we pray this morning that you would be a fire and a hammer in our hearts. And you would make us into something more lovely than we could ever be on our own. So be our present teacher and our guide, we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning, friends. Good morning. So, for those of you who wish I was Jean Zaru, I know. Some days I wish I was Jean Zarou. Jean was supposed to be the Bible half-hour speaker for Northwest me- or New England yearly meeting this year, but because of some health and travel commitments, um, she wasn't able to be here. She thought it was better to stay in Ramallah. And I know she would have loved to come because I was with Jean about a year ago and we were talking about the invitation to come and be here in a yearly meeting that she loves. And she would have been a thoughtful and powerful minister to speak on this topic of provoking one another to love. So Jean and I have been corresponding over the last couple of weeks, and I told her that this morning we would hold her in the light together. That we would ask God to infuse her with strength and peace and courage and joy as she continues to be a provocative presence for peace in her place and around the globe. So we... Can we take just a moment? Thank you, friend. Can we take just a moment and hold Gene in the light together? I've been thinking about this notion of holding someone in the light for several months now, especially as I've been sitting with these sessions. As many of you do in your home meeting, my home meeting takes time both during our programmed meeting for worship and at, at the conclusion of our unprogrammed meeting. We're both, actually. We have both programmed and unprogrammed meeting at my home. But we take time to share matters of prayer And it's common for the person who's facilitating this, of course, to say, let's hold so-and-so, or let's hold this situation in the light. Recently, in one of our meetings for worship, a friend shared a vulnerable and a painful concern. He spoke of a broken place in his life that needed deep healing. Another friend mentioned the crisis at the border. Another shared of a young co-worker Who suddenly passed away and left her husband and two small children. Another friend spoke of, or other friends spoke of weighty matters. And in the end, we were encouraged to hold these people and these places, these situations in the light. And we did so for the next 30 seconds or so. And I know there's no magic amount of time one must pray for it to be effective, but I left that morning feeling like we had candled eggs. more than actually held someone in the light. See, when you hold someone, when you candle eggs, you want to be careful to not leave it in the light for too long because you don't want to change anything. Leaving it exposed to the light will transform the embryo, and so you do it really quickly and then and move it away, which seems to be the exact opposite of what we are thinking about when we want to hold someone or a situation in the light. We want and even trust that God will somehow do this intentional makeover or this restorative work. We believe, I think, in the possibility of radical transformation and change. Margaret Fell's letter um, to friends is provocative in terms of what she's calling us to be in the process of provoking one another to love. It's clear that she believes in this radical possibility of transformation, and she's urging us to open ourselves, open ourselves fully to this light as we become ready to minister to others and to a world that's desperately in need of God's restorative energy in this place. Now, Phel's imagery is rooted in the Bible. This this whole notion, this letter is is connected to Hebrews chapter 10, where we're we're called to keep meeting with one another and provoking each other to love. She doesn't quote it exactly, but that's that's the place where this passage comes from. And her story is rooted in the Christian story. And I'm going to continue in that theme throughout the week because that's my story, too. That's my spiritual root. I met the living Christ on a college campus years ago and it changed virtually everything about who I am and what I do. And that doesn't mean I disrespect or dishonor or want to diminish anyone else's story or experience, but it is who I am and I pray in all earnestness that God's spirit may somehow translate and soften and enrich the words that I use, especially to those of you who who struggle with biblical imagery and and Christian language. But in this letter to convinced but not yet crucified friends, Fell says, Now friends, deal plainly with yourselves and let the internal light search you and try you for the good of your souls. For this will deal plainly with you. It will rip you up, it will lay you open, and will make manifest all that lodges within you. Now, there's an inviting proposition, don't you think? <laughs> I haven't had nearly enough coffee for that this morning. <laughs> Ripped open, laid bare, exposed for who and what we are. Hold this image this morning as now we consider um, the biblical text for today Luke chapter 11. No one, lights a lo- no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when they're unhealthy, your body is also full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light, no part of it, oh and no part of it dark, it will just It will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. Now in the Bible, we're used to thinking of lamps in regard to witness. Lighting a house so that others can see. But here Jesus switches the metaphor. Instead of lighting others, the light is... um, The body's eyes are the lenses that shed light into the body itself. This isn't strictly a a scientific concept, but it's a spiritual one. The shining light is the presence of Christ, who's reflected in us and through us as we open our eyes and our hearts to see and embrace God's truth. Then we're filled with a glory that is evident to other people. But this work depends in part on the health of our spiritual eyes. The word translated good from the Greek means single or simple. It means sincere or pure. It includes a spirit of holding nothing back so that there might be clarity and freedom from distortion. When there's an, the idea of, this idea of singleness and simplicity is applied to the physical eye, it refers to healthy, focused vision in contrast to double vision or split vision. So when Jesus says, you can't serve God and mammon, he's saying, you've got to focus on one reality. You can't look at both simultaneously, not it won't be clear. You've got to somehow bring them to the center to be focused on that one truth. The description of bad eyes used in the Greek shows up a few verses earlier where the same writer is talking about a wicked generation. Same word. In the physical sense, it means eyes that are unhealthy or sick, In the ethical sense, the the idea is that they're vicious or selfish or lacking integrity. Within the same passage or within this passage, the issue is not a lack of light. The light is everywhere. There's plenty of that. The matter is the condition of our eyes. Are they wide open? Is our vision sound and unhindered? Are we purposefully or unintentionally filtering out light that would allow us to be help us see the truth in all of its fullness and beauty and this is where Jesus cautions us to consider this question carefully from the presence of light to the problem of sight what he's really concerned about is the pretense of sight our capacity to believe that we have everything figured out when in fact we may not and so he says in verse 35 watch out that the light in you may not be darkness. Now, those, to those people who are listening to him, the Pharisees, they figure they've got this thing all down pat, right? They're fully sighted. They know everything. But Jesus says, watch out. Or in the Greek, it's, it's the word that we get, our, our Greek word, scope. He's saying, scope this out carefully. No, closer. Really close now. I want you to look carefully at this matter. Because what you, in fact, may be seeing is not light but darkness. The psychologists suggest we, have, we all have this filtering system to create um, or to help us concentrate on stimuli that we think is important and filter out the things that we think are unimportant. Marketers tell us that we see hundreds or thousands of advertising messages each, each and every day. And for our sanity, our brains filter some of these things out. So filtering mechanisms are necessary. They're really helpful for us. But the question is, are we being careful? Are we being honest? Are we being humble in ourselves? That we remain open to new truth? That we haven't closed ourselves off from some light that would help us see all the more clearly? If you read Margaret Fell's full letter, and I really hope you do, As I said, I've been trying to read it daily for months now. She pleads that those who are newly convinced of the truth will not fool themselves by living in a form of spiritual pretension. She warns them to stay in the cross, to observe their hearts being ripped open, with their secrets exposed, to learn what it means to die to oneself, to be made new, free from sin and distortion, enabled to join in unity, to become united with God and to participate with the children in light in making all the fruits of God's kingdom come. Now, Lisa talked about the undoing or the uncovering that needs to happen, and I've loved that notion because for Margaret Fell, this is a really challenging thing because we are children of the empire. We are square watermelons, Right? Which are grown in Japan, one place they're grown in Japan, because they, they stack easily. They don't take up a lot of space. And so how do you make a square watermelon? Well, you put them in a box. You cage them so that they are conformed to the image that they want, you want them to be. Right? And this is the empire. This is how we all live. And I'm absolutely able to see how each of you are caged like this, but I can't see it in myself, right? Because this is the air that I breathe. This is my reality. It's what Romans 12 says, where Paul spends... 11 chapters talking about the nature of God and says, therefore, here's the work that you have to do. No longer be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That means you've got to break out of that cage. And he says, when you break out of that cage, that's when you're going to be able to discern God's good and perfect will. Not before. And so we need a light that is fierce and powerful to break us out of that box, right? Right? It's got to be so very strong. And then to connect what Lisa said with what Noah said is that watermelons, to become fully formed, need about 8 to 10 hours a day of full light. We need to be in the light. We need to let that light enrich us and transform us and to shape us into the beautiful image that God has created us to be that is still hidden within us but is waiting for us to call, to call it out. Now, we know this process as convincement, right? This is the process of convincement for friends. We've read those stories of friends who were brought so deep and low in the spirit that it was almost unbearable that the love and mercy of God has overcome them and it's, it's just about to explode their soul. That's, that's the process of, of convincement. When, when that ocean of darkness gives way to that harbor of light, where we can stand in it, where we can learn to swim against the prevailing tides of those storms of darkness that come to us. But convincement was the conversion process for them. It wasn't a change of religious affiliation. When Jesus and the early church called people to the kingdom of God, it was an invitation to repent. Now, there's a word we love, right? More words before coffee. Repent. Repent. But repent, not in the old, in the way that evangelicals, which is my background, an evangelical friend, not in the way that evangelicals have mangled that word to talk about shame and guilt and groveling for acceptance, but rather an invitation to turn from self and sin toward God and all that, that is good. The Greek word is metanoia, a radical reorientation and transformation, a moral and ethical overhaul in which a person takes on a new way, guided by a more beautiful truth into a brand new life. It's a change of loyalties, a restated sense of allegiance within a new community, and as we'll talk tomorrow, it's also a radical act of civil disobedience. Metanoia can come at great cost to one's safety, to their social standing, and even their life. And it begins with this internal revolution an interior restoration where our inevitable shadows and brokenness are overcome and refashioned by a very real, overwhelmingly merciful, and radically powerful presence of light. Now, this call to metanoia is very different than proselutos, which is another Greek word, which the word we get, uh, our word proselytize. Jesus has no interest, he seems, in, in changing one's uh, religious affiliation. He didn't seem to care whether you consider yourself a Greek or a, a Gentile or a God-fearer or whatever, just as I don't think he probably cares today about what we call ourselves. And friends often take pride in the fact that we don't proselytize. And generally, we don't. But my question is, in our allergy to proselytizing, have we forgotten the need for metanoia, for transformation? Actually, when I hear friends talk about convincement these days, it sounds more to me like proselytos than metanoia. Why are you a Quaker? Well, I love the peace testimony. I like being part of a group that doesn't tell me what to think or how to act. I like the silence, I like the meeting house, I like your political perspective because Quakers are just way cooler than I ever imagined. (laughs) But rarely do I hear anyone talk about their experience of convincement as being ripped open and laid bare and changed. Now hear me, I'm not saying those other impulses to be part of the friend's community are bad, but I'm just asking the question, are our lives and our life together being fully exposed to the light of God? Is our double vision being healed? Are we being careful to not filter out the fullness of the light? This week, you're going to hear me talk a little bit more about, about um, how to focus on um, or being ready to provoke one another to love more than I'm going to talk about the actual work of provoking one another to love. Because, frankly, I think friends know what we need to be doing. We know the work. But, I, I'm, not, but I'm not clear that we're ready to do it. And as I travel around, I get to, I get to spend time all around the country with different groups of friends And the two things that I hear us talking about sometimes are fear and anxiety. We're we're trapped by fear or anxiety. The fear to act and the anxiety to do something. We just need to do something. Because the world's such a crappy place. We've got to do something. I was at a Mennonite conference just a couple weeks ago, and the conference minister and I were talking about being a peace church in, in, in the 21st century. And, we, and I talked about this fear and anxiety, and this one person said, I feel like I'm bouncing between those two poles. Just constantly bouncing between them. And this is a problem that the disciples in Jesus' day faced, fear and anxiety. They had to stare it down on many occasions. There's over a hundred occasions in the Bible where the, that contain the line, Fear not or be not afraid. Fear itself is talked about over 500 times. Why? Well, at least in the case of Jesus, because often he was asking them to do something that was scaring the daylights out of them. And when they weren't paralyzed by fear, the disciples and others in the the Old Testament were often so eager to run ahead of their guide, right? The guide whose strategy for changing the world is, follow me, right? I think you can summarize Jesus' Transform a call to change the world is follow me. And they just wanted to run out ahead. And I get that impulse, and especially for friends who feel the pains of the world are, you know, we we, we feel this tension, this desire to want to do something, and we feel like there's no time to wait when the world is burning. But sometimes, like the disciples, we need to hang out in Jerusalem to receive power to receive that anointing that makes prophetic ministry possible. Robert Louis Stevenson, the author of Treasure Island, spent his childhood in Scotland in the 19th century. And as a boy, he he was intrigued by the work of old lamplighters who went about on their ladder and a torch, and they set the streets ablaze for the night. And one evening, uh, young Robert stood watching with fascination and his parents said to him, Robert, what on earth are you looking at? And with, with uh, oops, I'm going the wrong way. Story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and, and with great excitement, he said, look at that person. He's punching holes in the darkness. I think we friends are drawn to that work of punching holes in the darkness. We want desperately to be agents of change to mend a broken world, to dismantle systems of oppression and create a more just and peaceable society. And in fact, this is the work we're called to as the friends of Jesus, as people who are spirit-led, as people who are part of the Lamb's War. But to be people who are adept at punching holes in the darkness, we must be full of light full of light rather than full of fear or driven by an anxiety to do something or to be relevant or to be, get credit or to ease our own sense of guilt or to enhance our reputation. We need to be full of light, so full of it, it rips us open. It, it shatters our glass cages. It casts out our shadows and heals our wounds. It animates our wisdom It inspires our courage. It gives us peace and power that we can't muster on our own. So William Penn says, when you come to your meetings, what do you do? Do you gather together bodily only and kindle a fire, compassing yourselves with sparks of your own kindling and so please yourself? Or rather, do you sit down in the true silence, resting from your own will and workings, waiting upon the Lord, with your mind fixed in the light, wherewith Christ has enlightened you and prepares you and your spirits and souls to make you fit for his service? The kingdom of God, the scriptures say, is not a matter of talk, but of power, And I think that we need a deeper power that makes us authentically fit for service. So, as we spend a few moments in silence this morning, and as we hold each other in the light, can we do so in a way that our souls might explode? Well, we'll risk giving up the warmth and security of the womb for the disruption and discomfort of a new birth. This morning, friends, may the piercing light of Christ have its way with each of us and all of us as we wait.